Welcome to Arcade Attack. <laughs> A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Sonic Boom! Big Bad Geek! Welcome listeners, welcome viewers to the Arcade Attack podcast. And today we've got another amazing guest on the show. A true Sega EA LucasArts legend. He's he's done it all. Um, Tony Van, a real pleasure, a real privilege to have you on today's show. Thank you, Tony, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Um, happy to be part of your legendary run. <laughs> <laughs> we've had some real legends on the show. I, you know, I'm not trying to beat us, you know, pat ourselves on the back too much, but we've had some. I will I will say this. You've had some real legends on this show. <laughs> it is, Tony. The pressure, bit of pressure on yourself today, but um I really, obviously, I think the bulk of the interview will be about Sega today, but I, I, that wasn't where you first started. Sega? Uh, look, Sega? Did someone say Sega? Exactly. Look at that crazy, that's amazing t-shirt. Uh, is that a proper legit classic? Or is that- it's not a proper legit classic. I, <laughs> I, I got it a couple of years ago, but uh, um, awesome. and, uh, I don't know. I don't know why I don't have a proper legit one. I have other okay. ones, but not this one. It still looks great. Um, well, let's start right at the beginning, though, Tiny. How did you first get the opportunity to enter the video game industry? Because obviously, Sega wasn't your first your first role. So was my to first, know how. first rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, you know, I've set the way back machine. Um, so, a, a gentleman you know, and some of your listeners know, Michael Latham. Him and I were best friends. We uh, we worked together at uh, at a software store and, and later a hardware and software store. So we were selling computer games and computer stuff. And being in the Bay Area, you meet a number of people from various computer shows and computer places. And and he knew someone who was working at Rainbird Software, which is a publisher in the UK, which had an office. So he got recruited because of his strength. You know, basically he knew a lot, and uh, and so he got swooped up first. Now, Rainbird worked in the back office of Activision. So uh, Activision was like the giant building. And in this little tiny area was the Rainbird Group. So Mike says to me, he's like, Tony, you got to come work for Activision. I, I don't know. I don't know if I can work for Activision. Oh, come on, Tony, you can do it. <laughs> so uh, I, I, what, you, what I did was I said, OK, let's go. You know, customer service is open. Let's do customer service. So you go through the basic interview of customer service. And I blew all the basic questions away because I'd been selling computers, like every computer that was available and every software. So any question about a computer, I already knew the basic answer. I knew basic troubleshooting. I knew basic what the, what the issues were. So they said, great, you're hired. And, uh, and I started my career answering phones uh, for customers wanting hints or having problems with their games at Activision next to another legend called uh, Ken Balthaser who uh, ended up having quite a career in sports. And uh, like like many things in, in our conversations, you will hear names probably over and over again because yeah, yeah. Uh, I like to say a lot of things, you know, everything's connected. And uh, it, it seems uh, in this in these stories, you'll see a lot of interconnectivities. Brilliant. And obviously, I just want to pause for a second because obviously we'll talk about Michael a few times today. And um, I don't want to... Well, I hope you don't mind, Tony, but we've we've interviewed him a couple of times on the past, and 
obviously in case our listeners, you know, new listeners might not know, did did pass away sadly, and he he became a friend of mine. I don't want to you know veer off no, into no, the no, apologies, no. but he became a, a friend of the show, became a friend of Arcade Attack, and um, we still think about him today. And um, you obviously, I mean, I don't know if it worse him up, but you obviously miss him, and he he was a dear friend of you. You knew him at so many years; <laughs> it's Absolutely. incredible. Yeah, um, as you know, I, I did his eulogy when yeah, we did his virtual funeral because it was during the pandemic, and um, and I t- told some stories there. I'll probably tell some stories here um, that'll overlap. And yeah, I mean, I I knew him, you know, extremely long time, and we both started together, uh, and I got to see the the you know the the things that he did and the man that he became but he was yeah. always to me a uh, super close friend I mean, we, we were just best friends from the minute that we met pretty much oh bless you yeah. what, what what pleasure to, i'm sure i'd be very proud that you're on the show as well so um anyway what so actually you went to activision sorry so what Right. How so, great we were, so, so Mike and I are at Activision and I'm answering phones and he's doing his thing at Rainbird and Rainbird falls apart. And um, and the, the director of product development, uh, Sherry Whiteley, she said uh, she went to both Ken and I and gave us opportunities while we're answering phones to produce games, what she would she would have called the low risk games. But just yeah. to see if we had it. Um, cause I was like constantly going to her and saying, Oh, you know, we could do this better and we could do that better. And, uh, Oh, look at all these things that I've like, I redid all of the hints and I made them all more updated and I put some polish on them and I had little visual effects in them and stuff. And so I think she was impressed by just my gumption. And, uh, so she gave me this opportunity. So while we're answering phones, I'm producing Shanghai redo. So Shanghai at the time was Macintosh black and white. And they said, well, there's this color thing. Let's do color. So I said, okay, let's do a Shanghai color. So I got to work with the developer to do that. And we threw it a bunch of little things and the thing was a huge success. And that gave her confidence in me to promote me to associate producer. That's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> and that's I bet you don't, yeah, yeah, that's a great little, I mean, fair play. I mean, obviously you knew computers beforehand and you, you took your opportunity and, um, uh, but how did I've, I've got to ask? I don't want to sort of jump too ahead in your career. But how did Lucasfilm Games come in? Was that your kind of next step? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got to um, you know I don't want to dwell too too much on that. But Mike and I were both uh, Mike Rainbird fell apart. Mike Games is up coming in as associate producer. And we're both basically being promoted together, just parallelly on the things that we're doing. Um, and so I'm uh, at at one point um, Activision falls apart. Uh, they have a huge um, they have a huge lawsuit that they lost. Uh, about copy, uh, uh, patent infringement. And that just basically put the company into a tailspin. So both Mike and I are out and, uh, you know, in layoffs. And so I had to find another job. So I went to SSI, did that for a bit. That's where I met my wife. And uh, so that was an excellent detour. And uh, while working at SSI, uh, I get a phone call from one of the people who I worked with at Activision. And two of those people had, had gone on to Lucasfilm. So uh, one of them was uh, Kelly Flock. The other one was Lucy uh, Lucy Bradshaw. And both of them were like, hey, Tony, you know, we we need someone over here to do some producing. Would you like to come produce for us? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I left my job, which I enjoyed very much at SSI. I had a great time doing that. I did a game called Buck Rogers Countdown to Doomsday for Genesis. I learned a lot about Genesis at that time. And uh, then I went over to Lucasfilm. And that's how I got there. I mean, we've had a few Lucasfilm or LucasArts legends on the show. Um, we've had David Fox. We've had Dave Grossman. We've had um, 
plenty, you know, Noah Falstein. Yep. What what was it? I mean, were you working with these like Ron Gilbert? Were you working with these yep. people? What was your exact role and what games did you work on during Lucasfilm? Yeah, I was hired as a producer and I was working exactly with all those legends. It was a legendary time. <laughs> to use the word legendary, because why not? <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, we had we had Noah was there, Dave was there, Tim Schafer. Ron was there, but then he had left. Um, so I was there to see his leaving. Um, he, he, uh, Hal Barwood was there. Um, Sean Turner. So all the all the people who are big names are all working there. And I have the incredible luck to you know, be working next to them. So this, the project I was brought on to, to first start was they, they had this project of Indiana Fates of Atlantis was, was being completed yeah. as an adventure game, yes. but they had this action game and uh, they just couldn't get it out the door. So that was the first thing they assigned to me. Um, and I just, I wrapped it up. I got it out so it could finally be shipped. And um, uh, then they said, okay, well, you know, we're, we're working on Monkey Island. We're moving games to Sega Genesis. You have uh, Sega CD, like Monkey Island. You have experience in Sega CD. So I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And uh, so that's what I was working on, just kind of parallel to all these guys. They're all doing their stuff. Brian Moriarty was there also. He yeah. was working on The Dig. Um, and then that ended up, I think, to Sean Turner. But um, at my time, I was doing just, I was just kind of just picking up all the little things that were going on. And then Kelly Flock comes in and says, you know, we're thinking about doing a Star Wars CD game. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'll tell me more. <laughs> you know, and he's like, well, we don't know what it is yet. We got some people who are thinking about it. And so I went home and I started to think about it and say, well, what, what would be great? Because the CD was just released. I mean, it was just barely mm. out there. The only games that, that supported CD were just games that you would have on a floppy and then would have like either talkies, which is what Lucasfilm was doing, talkies is what they called it, where they put the voice track to the to the old game. Yeah. Or most other games would just have some sort of like uh, CD soundtrack, you know, so you'd be playing the game, there'd be some CD music playing in the background. And that was a big upgrade. So the idea of making a game that took care of the CD didn't really exist. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, what can we do? Like, what is the CD doing? Like, what, what can we do? And I remembered playing a, an old laser uh, laser disc game, kind of like you know, the first laser disc game we all know of is Dragon's Lair. Oh, that's classic. But there, then that created a ton of other laser disc games. And this game was unique because it wasn't like Dragon's Lair. What it was was it was just a space battle, kind of like Galaga. You know, you got your ship and you've got your firing other ships. And you're just doing arcade nonsense on top. Yeah. But on the back, it's showing this super beautiful CGI rendered stuff. And it turned out most of that stuff from this game came from Star Trek uh, Two. Oh, really? Honestly, or what? Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to remember the name. I was going to try to remember the name before uh, we got on. I'm sorry, yeah, but sorry. Uh, it was this Philips CD uh, or Philips, um, uh, if I remember, uh, laser disc game. Anyway, so that gave me the idea because what I loved about the visuals were great, but they had no connectivity to the game. So right. the Star Wars game I wanted to do. So I've also been in love with the with the trench. Like, you know, can I get into the trench? Can I play the trench? How can I play it better than I've ever seen it before? <laughs> so my idea was, what if we could do the like movie level graphics on the CD, and we inserted the player as an X wing or whatever flying craft? Yes. And instead of it just being a background that played, it was interactive. You could hit the edges. You could you could move around it, and you could even branch and go one way or the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. So these were all ideas that I had on what it could be. So I I pitch it to them, and they're like, "Well, this is interesting." And one of their engine engineers 
um, who, you know, cause they had a, they had a full team of people just working on scum, you know, just to create, yes. make that engine work and make it better and put it to all the other languages. So one of the guys, Vince Lee was, um, one of their programmers and he actually had experience working on software that had rendered 3d graphics. So okay. I said, okay, let's create a prototype. Let's do something Star Wars. Let's create a prototype of a figure eight of a, of a like, you know, ground, like just, just planet ground. And we're flying through. We're going to superimpose the, the X-Wing as a sprite. And we're going to end up going. This, this video is going and we have to stay in the trench. So that's what we did. And we created right. this branching technology that, that I thought of. I was like, well, we could... You know, all, all all this video is just, it's film. It's buffer, it's film that we're running frame after frame after frame. So let's keep a buffer in memory. So we have film of us going down the left side of the trunk of this thing when it's in a figure eight, but we have a buffer of us going down the right side. So if the, the user is on the right side of the screen, we'll play the buffer. And if they're on the left side of the screen, we'll play the video. So we wow. take that. And we did a few other things too. I wanted to render the screen, the video to be larger than what we could show. So when you were turning and banking, we could move the screen. So it really felt like you were moving. I learned this from being in, uh, in Star Tours and just, you know, you've got a physical reaction, but nice. also the video is moving along <laughs> with reactions. And we did a few other things. I think we did some 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 frame trimming so you could uh, see the frames kind of spank a little bit. So it just made it more immersive and more interesting. And that was the prototype that we did. And when we showed that, then we got the green light to do the game. That game became Rebel Assault. I mean, I played that game. I, I thought it was a great game. It <laughs> um, it kind of led to was it Tie Fighter X Wing? Is that right? Is that what that's the kind so? Of... It didn't. I wouldn't say it led to it. At the same time, so I okay. got to meet Larry Holland, who who did all of those great. He did the World War II series before, and um, and he had started working on X Wing at the time, oh, and okay. so he was doing X Wing, and it was in development. And then I was working on this other thing. And, and it did cause a little confusion internally. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. why would we be doing two types of games? We're doing an X-Wing. Why are we doing this other X-Wing game? Like, they're really very, very different mm. things. Especially if you ever, I don't know if there's YouTubes of, of the original stuff. I mean, sometimes you can find there were some hardware acceler- or hardware cards that, that put, like, textures on them. But pretty yeah, much yeah. the first games were just basic polys. And uh, it's just the visual difference was uh, was amazing. No, not to take away from X Wing, X Wing was an amazing game, and I played it like to death. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, what? Well, I mean, did you ever? Uh, apologies, I'm going off the question slightly here, but did you ever meet George Lucas at all? Because I've always asked that question. <laughs> I don't know if you ever. I, I, I was I, okay. So let me tell you something about Lucasfilm. Right. So I was there when it was Lucasfilm Games. And they were just changing their name to Lucas Arts, and so they were coming up with the new logo and all that stuff. Um, but I was there, so it was really an amazing time for me yeah. to be there. It was just right at the the edge of a lot of things, a lot of great guys, a lot of new ideas. Day of the Tentacle, Tim and and Dave were pitching the idea of Day of the Tentacle. I think yes. I saw the first couple pages of what the overview was. Um, I was hired. Oh, I forgot. I was hired to actually work on the Indiana Jones Chronicles, which was, if anybody remembers, a very short-lived TV series that was the Indiana Jones TV series with him as a kid. And they had the two different things. They had him as like yes. a five-year-old and him as like an 18-year-old wanting to get into World War One. And so I was hired to do the adventure game for that show. 
Wow. Okay. That was the real reason they hired me. I, I was doing some other stuff on the side. So in order to do that, um, well, uh, before, I, before I get to that story, I wanted to say a few more things. So at Lucasfilm, the one thing that, that I thought was amazing was you could go up to the ranch. We didn't work on the ranch. We worked closer to ILM uh, that was off the ranch. And um, you could go up to the ranch and you could actually like, you know, maybe there'd be a meeting, but you could do something. You could go to the store, the company store. You could just go around the ranch. You could just be a visitor and you can go and have lunch. So did I meet George Lucas? Well, uh, I saw him at lunch. Uh, we had a really amazing Christmas party where uh, I uh, it was just intense. And I yeah. saw him like, you know, shaking hands with people. Did I have the nerve to go up and shake his hand? I didn't. But uh, I, I, for Indiana Jones, you had to get George's approval for the story. So right. we and me and, and the producer, uh, I mean, I was a producer and there was a designer. So um, me and the designer were working on it. And we, we, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to go here and there and blah, blah, blah. So we write up the story and I send it in because George is going to look at it and he's going to either approve it or not. And so I wait and like a week later, it comes back and I open it up and I'm like, okay, what is it? What is it? And then at the very bottom, there's a post-it and post-it says, please type approved yes or no and add a checkbox. So I'm like, okay, oh. so, all right, I'm going to do all this and da, 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 send it back in and wait another week or so. It comes back and I'm opening it up and what are the notes? What are the things? So I got approved. Yes. Check. Oh, Look good. My George Lucas uh, interaction. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, a little bit of a letdown. I mean, in one way it's gratifying that he had no notes, that it was so great that he mm. was ready to approve it and not say no, but uh, oh, I would like tiny bit of feedback before yeah, yeah. <laughs> we went forward. But uh, yeah, that's those are my George Lucas uh, intersections. Did, did that game ever come out, Tony? I can't. No. no. I was going to say, I can't recall that adventure yeah, title. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, well, the, the series was canceled midway. Yeah, of course. It, yeah. it didn't even run a full series, a full season. It just did not live up to the hype, I guess. Um, I mean, I thought it was cool. I've seen it recently. Uh, well, not recently, but I've seen it, you know, since then and it is cool there is a lot of interesting things in it and they did a lot of stuff with history but it's just not what everybody had in mind so whatever they canceled it and um uh and and then well there's no game because there's no series no of course would it would it have been a point and click adventure game was that was that the plan sorry yeah we were doing a point and click adventure game now at the same time yeah there were rights for sega to do the series too wow and of all the people Guess who got assigned at Sega to do this game of the? This, 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 this. Would you would you think maybe it was Mike Latham? I reckon so. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike also had his whole thing, and he had done a big story, and he proposed it in, and everything was going, and we were talking about it. Hey, you're doing this thing, I'm doing that thing. That's really great. Let's work together. If we really couldn't because we we're doing diff- two different things, mm-hmm. but it's like whatever. And anyway, the shoe got uh, dropped. And uh, that was one thing that made me sort of think about, you know, what what Sega was offering, you know, because there were a lot of cool things going on at Sega and, you know, a number of things. But ultimately, I left Lucasfilm. I, I pitched and yeah. started Rebel Assault. I put together the, the main three leads. I wrote out the treatment of what the whole game should be. And I left and went to Sega. Uh, yeah, I mean, so Lucasfilm Games was was a good stepping stone, would you say? You don't you enjoyed that time? You, you I know? did. I, I I 
I did, and I got a, a game that actually, yeah. you know, made the light of day from an idea that I had that nobody, nobody that I knew had had that idea. I've since seen like there was, you know, there was the whole thing going on with Hasbro and the creation of, of Night Trap, which is kind of different than what I did. But, um, you know, the idea of having the idea of multiple streams running and being able to move between streams, I kind of had that idea. Right, um, but it was great to see this this thing that I thought of, you know, actually come out and and be a hit. Yeah, I was I read that that Rebel Assault was the highest selling game from Lucasfilm until Knights of the Old Republic. And I, I don't know if that's true. I swear that's I, read, crazy. I read it from a normal, uh, a good source. But uh, even if that's not true, it's still, I know it was a, a big, big deal. seller. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people think of just the point and click games, but you're right. Lucasfilm games and LucasArts was more than just that. It, 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 yeah. Well, that engine, so Rebel Assault goes out mm. and then the... The, the, the point and click team says, hey, why don't we create some action scenes inside of our games? Yeah. And so then they found out how to, we had to bring the engine into the game. Um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it now. The, 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 game with the, the, team that, the game that Tim did with the leather-clad biker. Oh, it's uh, Full Throttle, yeah. Yeah, Full yeah, Throttle. Full there full, yeah, it's a great game. Yeah. Um, that game had was the first one that had did. Did, yeah. engine inside of it when you're doing like uh i remember I, when i played it it was um you were like on a motorcycle and you're trying to run the other guys or something that's right yeah yeah i think um we interviewed dave grossman i think he was part of that i think he was part of that particular part in the game actually if i, I might be wrong but well let's, I, let's, i'm sorry tony yeah no i i, I was gonna say I'm, I'm not sure but i don't doubt it dave was really involved in a lot of stuff yeah, we were a funny guy as, as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about Sega then, because obviously Michael was there at the time. Is that right? He was already working in Sega. Yeah, he, so he, he's yeah, good friend of yours. Was he was he like the opening for you to get there? I, I take it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, man, you know, I'm looking for you know something. I, I don't remember if he brought it up or I brought it up. I don't think I brought it up because I was you know I, mean, I was doing Rebel Assault, but I think he was like, hey, you know, man, this thing's really great. What's going on over here? It's right down from your house. You know, I was making a huge commute. Um, I had my girlfriend who became my wife and, you know, they were all here. And, and it was, there was just a lot of things that were kind of like pulling me away from Lucasfilm. Um, but uh, when I went to and he said, hey, we got an opening and, you know, we have this thing, Sega CD. And I said, yeah, I know I'm working on it. And, you know, I'm, you know, I couldn't say, but, you know, with Rebel Assault, we were planning and and we were yeah. planning for, as I said, uh, Monkey Island. So, um you know, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm aware of that. And he's like, no, we're, we're going to do a lot of stuff. You really should be in on this. This sort of thing you'd like to do. I And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and I met and I interviewed and they were like, yes, we would like you to join our team. And I was like, nice. I think I'll do this. And that's uh, that's how it happened. Definitely Mike was the door in to uh, to get me that initial interview in there. Um what sort of date was this? Was this was mid, mid to night, mid nineties? Then I'll take it. Tony, I'm trying That's to get right. These, <laughs> I remember a lot of things, exact dates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that what, sounds about right. What was your? Um, what was your? Uh, yeah, sorry. Right. I was going to ask, what was your first game that you worked on? What was the first sort of job you had as a no. producer? Yeah. Michael says, "I've got a game, but I'm really busy. I need to give it to you." And I said, right. "Okay, what is it? Home Alone." I said, "Home Alone, okay." <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing in Home Alone? So Michael had uh, had done the design for Home Alone. Right, yeah. And uh, he had um, already started it off. It was halfway done. 
And he's like, you know, we just got to finish it, get it done. Okay. And let me segue, because I think a lot of, so, so I've talked to you about design, but really my job is a producer. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Maybe not everybody knows. Producing job, the producing job is bottom line, get the project done on time and on budget and good, right? You know, of quality. Um, and that can change, you know, how you do that, how everybody does that. Everybody has their own way. Every company has their own way. Every company has its own title for what that job is. I found that as I went different places, but the job's the same, you know, it's, it's get it done. So that's what this was. It was get it done. Um, but how you do it and, and the ways that you have to do it are the tricky parts. And in this case, he had a, he had a very ambitious design. Now, you know, this game takes a lot of heat, Adrian. I I don't know if you're aware of this, but some people don't like that game. The Mega Drive one, the, the, the oh, Genesis yeah, the, one. The Mega Drive one, you know, the yeah, one I've, with the I've, kids. It's, it's got mixed reviews. I have played it. Um, I, I, yes, yeah. I, I've heard some people call it the the best Christmas movie for the worst video game. <laughs> really? You know who might have said that? <laughs> <laughs> Are you are you looking at? I think maybe Dylan said that. Is that right? I don't know. <laughs> I've got a few more quotes, but I'll leave it at that. But, uh, it takes a lot of heat. Uh, it takes a lot yeah. of heat. It's mixed reviews. I'll give you that. But um, what it was was Michael's progressive design, and Michael actually went to John Hughes. So to get the yeah. license, to get the thing, he actually had. He told me this story. He he went. And pitched it to John. He said, look, you know, I know we could just do it in the house and we could do a scroll and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I got a bigger idea of this. I think mm. that what we could do is have him take the whole neighborhood. Like the whole neighborhood is under siege. And so he has to do all this stuff. And inside the neighborhood, every house is weird and wacky and has this mm. thing. And he's defending it against them. And that's the thing. And we got the go. Yeah, great. Nice. Do it. Sounds good. <laughs> so we did. And then he gave it to me. And then I had to finish it. And, and it was a huge design. The biggest problem with this, with this design, it wasn't the design. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. The design was pretty cool. And it was. It was, a, it was basically an open world game on a Sega. I had done mm. something earlier. I did Die Hard as my first game at Activision, which I also pitched for NES as an open world type game. And nobody knew what that looked like, you know. And we were we were kind of making it up as it came along because we know what what bread and butter is for for arcade games. It's side scroller. It's shoot things yeah. and they fall apart. You kick things, they fall apart. This was completely different. It was very similar to what I done in Die Hard, in which we were not only running around on the outside world to tell the viewers here, you're you're Kevin and you're on a you're on a uh, sled and you're powering your sled to go around the neighborhood and you have to look for where the wet bandits are. And then the wet bandits are in one of these houses, <laughs> which you could have put traps in. And so we had to simulate what was going on when you weren't in the house. We had to simulate what happened if there were traps in the house, mm. what percentage of pain, because the whole thing is to get them to total pain to leave the house. And if you win the game, if you get all of them done within a certain amount of time, 40 minutes, I think it was. Mm. So that was that was the deal. Um, so we were doing all this crazy stuff that you just generally don't don't, don't do this with. And we were working with uh, with a group um, in in um, in uh, Chicago, and uh, there were a bunch of uh, of very young programmers who were working on this game. So they were like cranking and just coming up with innovative ways to deal with all this craziness that you generally wouldn't do <laughs> on a Sega game. <laughs> Um, and, uh, that included animation. 
So there was a tremendous amount of animation. Every time you shot the crooks, they would get sticky glue or they would electrify yeah. or we would do these crazy animations. That was part of the payoff of the game was, you know, we got to see something funny. So it's great, but the houses, every house was different. Every villains had multiple things. They all the two different villains. They look completely different. So the, 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 there was like, okay. So the cart is a four megabit cart, the smallest. So yeah, just yeah, right yeah. We had 12 megabits of animation. In That's insane. So, <laughs> how do we get twelve megabits at four? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's my job. I got to figure that out. So I'm working with the engineers, and I'm like, okay, there's no one answer. I mean, bottom line, there's no way you 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 know, yeah. cut animation. You can't do that. That's not going to be enough. Then we have no animation. So what we had to do was three things. We had to do one. They had to figure out a compression. They had to be, they couldn't just keep the graphics in raw. They had to figure out how to compress them down to fit right. more graphics for than, you know, when you expanded them, be like six or seven. Hmm. That was one. Two, we had to, um, we had to uh, uh, go through those animations. We had to really, really stick them, you know, cut them down, wow. make them not as long, maybe cut some out. Uh, we had to just, just take all of those animations. And again, an animation is just frame and frame and frame and frame and frame of these things. So mm-hmm. we had to just cut those down. And then the third thing was we had to do really big optimization. So uh, anybody who doesn't understand technicals of, of Sega Genesis, basically everything is an eight by eight block. And right. all those eight by eight blocks get stored in the memory. So if you have something that takes more than an eight by eight block to, ex- to express itself, well, then you need... 16, you need two blocks or you need four blocks. And then you need those things to repeat over and over and over again. So if you're doing a, quote, hand-painted or digitized background (laughs) of a a wall, then you're going to be, every one of those tiles are going to be unique and therefore up up the memory. So we had to go through all of those. We had to bring those down so everything was fitting correctly into the tile. All of the animations, the animations couldn't be like a couple pixels taller when they were doing the electrocution or whatever. Yeah, yeah, everything yeah, yeah. had to run inside of the box so we could get all these extra stuff done. And only by doing <laughs> all of those things, which took some time, yeah. uh, we, we were able to make this game work. I think it deserves <laughs> more credit now, actually. I have to say Home Alone... <laughs> <laughs> um, now there, there's one final thing i want to mention on this game before we move off and mike um so mike's design was two things one was you would you would get the the you by going around the, the overland not only were you going to house to house but you were also finding all the components to make traps yeah. and he wanted you to be able to build complicated traps so you could have like yeah. something like throw marbles or you could find like uh i can't remember what the components were but you find like a launcher thing and you find have the marbles and then you would assemble them and i would make a marble launcher and so now you had a weapon that you could fire at range versus just dropping mm. them down and have somebody run over and over and over and over again so he came up with like a ton of and we know mike mike is super inventive so he came up with a yeah. ton of stuff but there was no the, the user was supposed to figure all this stuff out on their own. And I'm like, Mike, this is a game for kids. <laughs> you know? and, and kids are great and they're really smart, but nobody's going to understand how to make these things. And, you know, it's like just an inventory of all the items. You have to just kind of guess what plugs into what. So the, the one shortcut I made to his design was I said, let's, let's just simplify it. If you have the parts, 
will just tell the user they can make those parts, they can click they can the button. And poof, it'll do it. Um, but outside of that, all the other craziness that that he <laughs> came up with, um, we we did. I think I read somewhere, Tony, that maybe that's the first ever game where you could combine two weapons together. You could sort of, you know, you could customize. I I might be wrong. I, I did this. Read, I don't read know. On- hmm. I, I, I read maybe, that I fact a few months ago, thinking actually that's pretty pretty big. <laughs> we, they, they can, viewers can write to you and tell you if it's yeah, yeah. If, if something. I'm sure they're it. comments saying, yeah. I mean, but that would, I mean, the idea of it was was pretty, you know, pretty unique nonetheless. Um, and uh, we you know, we just it was it was like I said, it was a lot of fun. It was a huge challenge. You don't expect that with the Home Alone game that you're given when you first start. But uh, that's that's just what you do. That's what you do as a producer is you figure out how to get this stuff done. And again, it's, you know, I, I had some ideas, but it's not like, you know, I magicked it all up. You need talented people to then say, yeah, that's a good idea. I can do that. And on, not only that, but I can do this, this, and this that, you know, you may not mm. have thought of. I've played the Master System version more of Home Alone, but yeah. I want to play. I want to play the uh, the Mega Drive Genesis <laughs> version now. I have to say, I have to. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, respect, and it, that sums up Michael quite well, doesn't it? Not playing it safe. He could have done a bog standard platformer, couldn't he? Let's be honest. Or you and you, you as well, Tony, of course. But he, he, you, you and Michael had big, you know, respect. Um, yeah, I've got. Well, to, I was, it, it, Hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to say yes. It it it's it, it's easy to come up with crazy ideas. The hard part is how do you get it done? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and again, you got to look at all this stuff. And at the end of the day, you got to thank everybody who had hands on it. It's not just one person; it's it's the entire team. Of course. Um, what's Shadow? I've got to ask about Shadow Run. It's a it's quite a rare game. I'm sure you know. It's quite a highly respected game I, I, I put my hands up. i haven't played shadow run but i've looked around and it's it's obviously quite highly regarded <laughs> were you involved in that as well is that another game you're involved in yes yes so okay back to things being connected when i worked at activision i worked with a producer named scott burfield um i worked on BattleTech, uh a BattleTech game yeah. so they, they had released a BattleTech that was a really you know kind of rpg BattleTech game that came out called crescent hawks inception and then, uh, and then I was given the the ability to do the sequel, and um, and Scott Burfield was there. Now Scott Burfield worked at FASA, the the guys who created the IP for BattleTech, um, and so he knew a bunch of people there. And I worked with him, and I you know ran ideas with him. He was producing his own stuff, um, but I was so I was working on that, and I was working on BattleTech. And the big thing on BattleTech that I wanted to do was as much as I love the game, because I played the game many times, I was a huge fan of BattleTech, but I didn't want to go to a computer and have to do all of the same things I had to do on a tabletop, right? All of the turn-based movement and all the stuff that the first game did, it did it really well, but I thought, hey, we're on a computer, let's figure out how to make this stuff like be in real time. And so I worked through and what I, with the designers and with you know approval from, from FASA and the BattleTech guys, I created... All of the rules and systems of Battletech, but they ran in a real-time way. I won't waste too much time on it. But the bottom line is, is that was the big change for Battletech. So we became a what I called at that time a real-time strategy game. And I'll say yeah. I took inspiration from a game called Art of War. Well, I called it a real-time war game. 
Okay, I called it a real-time war game. And I took my inspiration from a game called Art of War that right. had done something like that, where you pause the game, you'd pull out all the things, you'd say what you wanted your troops to do, and then you'd let it run, and the troops would run and engage themselves and do their things, um, and then you'd pause it and give them new commands. So I was like, that's really cool. I want to do that with Battletech. And I want to, don't want to have like four guys, which is what you had in the original game. I want like what they call a lance, which is 12 mechs. And if I want 12 mechs, I can't do that one time. That would take forever to do a turn with 12 yeah. mechs. It would so let's do it all and give the player more feeling of command and more feeling of the pressure of what's happening. And that was with Westwood Studios. And Westwood Studios later created Command and Conquer, which yeah. takes not from this, it takes, takes some from this game and from other games too. I won't go into their big history, but uh, that was that was one of the first games that Westwood had done using this technology. They'd, they'd done another one in one of their RPGs too. Again, I don't want to take all the credit, but we had done this thing. And the whole point was, to, my, my want was to take every single rule in Battletech and make it work. So that rule book is 100% percent accurate it's just in real time so when i get to sega and i get to the ability to do shadow run again it's a situation where scott people was like uh i'm oh he was leaving he was leaving he's like hey i'm taking off i just started this project you know um uh can you take it over i'm like sure yeah. uh and he says oh you know there's there's this nes thing and i'm like yeah yeah i'm aware of that he's like well they're, they're doing their own thing you know we're, we're doing it separate from them don't don't worry about that but they have to approve it so I'm like, okay, they're, they're the licensor, we're a separate licensor, okay, that makes sense. And then I worked with the team, and I talked to the engineers, and I looked at it, and Shadowrun is, again, another facet thing that I really love. Yeah. And I'm like, do we want to do it turn-based? I don't think so. Let's do it real-time like we did with Battletech. And so I worked with the engineers, and I worked with the, um, uh, the FASA, and said, this is what I want to do. I basically want to do this giant game where you're controlling multiple things all at once in real time using every one of your rules. And the, at this time, they were coming up with this new fiction. So they had all these old mechs and they had new fictions about the future. They're like, well, you know, we're, we're going to launch these new future mechs are kind of the new things we're going to be doing. From now on. And I'm like, okay, I'll split oh, yeah. the game in half. We'll do half of it in the past, half of it in your new future. And it'll all be using this whole thing. And they said... Oh, I'm sorry. I got I got Battletech confused with the with Shadow Shadowrun. <laughs> Shadowrun. They they said, yeah, we're good with the the real time. That sounds great. And again, working with the engineers at Blue Sky, yeah, yeah. we said, okay, let's do this. Let's make an arcade game, but it's running all the rules of Shadowrun, and that's what it is. And we had a Shadowrun writer, one of the guys who wrote the adventures. I had him write up the whole scenario of what the game was. Um, the dialogue was between me and one of the engineers who, uh, had a, had a background, uh, as he did some, uh, standup comedy. <laughs> so oh. <laughs> he wrote some funny stuff and I wrote some funny stuff and we just, you know, had to, a great time working on that game. It looks great. I really want to play it now, actually, I have to say. Yeah, I want you to get, <laughs> get a copy. Yeah, it, it does look awesome. Um, was, I just... Obviously, you you were bought in originally. You kind of mentioned earlier, um, Tony, about the, the Sega CD and and how you, you had a, already a bit of understanding. Because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you worked on a few FMV titles as well. Are you happy to kind of fill in maybe some of the games you worked on? Uh, how does that kind of compare with Home Alone or, or Shadowrun, kind of more sixteen bit cartoon yeah. games? So I'm I'm a huge fan of FMV. I mean, that's yeah. what Rebel Assault was. It was. Yeah. The idea of saying, let's take this wonderful video technology and find a way to make interesting gameplay out of it. And like the ability to branch, 
you know, the ability to seamlessly do these things. Um, these, these were interesting, the ability to do video, uh, you know, there's just a lot of ideas and that's what we got from FMV. But the way that FMV evolved, you know, the biggest winner of FMV was Dragon's Lair, right? Before, yes. I mean, if you talk about any game that is a video-driven game, number one is going to be Dragon's Lair. And so number one, that's how everybody kind of falls back. Like, let's make a better Dragon's Lair. Um, and I love Dragon's Lair, and it was awesome for what it was. And there's a, but the bottom line is, is you don't know what you're supposed to do. And you don't know exactly yeah. when you're supposed to do it. And so you fail way more times than you should. Yeah. Even, and, and this is the thing that, that killed me. Uh, I, I don't want to speak badly about Dragon's Lair, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, I'll push the joystick up, but I didn't quite get it up. I got kind of, uh, no, sorry, that's not. Huge. It's unforgiving, isn't it? But, I mean, it's a quarter eater. It is an arcade system. It's, you know, they really don't want you to, to, to do this. So they did their job right in that way. But from a gameplay experience that bothered me, and, and I saw from a lot of FMVs, I felt like they were coin flip games. It's like, uh, what should I do? I don't know. Uh, I'll try this. Oh, you die. Okay, great. Let's play it again. And not only do you have to play it again, you have to play that whole sequence again. <laughs> and you do it again. Yeah. And then you fail. So you get one second of interactivity to all of the things. So that, that to me was the bad parts of FMVs. And the good parts are the immersiveness, the video, the surprising mm. things that you can do, the ability to make the player really feel like they're in control of this thing that they you know that that is static by definition because it's video yeah so that's that's how i felt about fmvs now when um the games that i worked on again were assignments so they they had been in production they were just trying to be completed and uh for one reason or another they needed to be sent over to me so i can complete them and that was fahrenheit and surgical strike and wirehead Right. We'll, we'll, we can talk about Power Rangers later, but in okay. order, I think it was those three. It was first I did Fahrenheit, then I did Surgical Strike, and then I did Fahrenheit. And um, which, of course, to you, we would call Celsius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but uh, so those those FMVs, we uh, they came to me. They were practically done. But again, right. practically done is is a very vague term. You know, when you're not in the industry, you think practically done is like, oh, they got a few bugs to fix, and you know, it's it's over. But uh, there were a lot, and and right. a lot of things that that had to be addressed. And and in playing it, just the quality level again. Part of the job as a producer is is this the best quality I can get out? And for Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit was filmed like just in segments. So you're, you're in a hotel trying to evacuate people. And so you get a segment of a hallway and then you get another segment of a hallway and another segment. So that's kind of, I'm guessing that's how they filmed it. I wasn't there for that. Part. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it felt. It felt like I just had one hallway that I was getting one video segment over and over and over again. So it's really easy to get lost in this game because you're like, everything looks the same. Everything is the same. It's the same stuff. Yeah. So we, you know, while I was working with the, the engineer, I was like, well, could we maybe put an overhead map somewhere so people can at least like spatially understand where they are in this game, and give them half a chance to finish it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and we had some other thing too. I remember we put in like an oxygen meter and we put in some other stuff. So we, again, it was just working with the developer who was under deadline to get it done, but right. also 
open to saying, okay, that's a good idea. I can implement that. And, and yes, I think it'll make for a better game, which was what we're all after. Duff, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, what's your views? I mean, you, you said you liked the games, but it did they did get a bad reputation at one point. And maybe that's kind of stuck a little bit even today. And I, I think that's a bit unfair, really, because they were... They were very innovative at the time, I think, very different. But why why yeah. do you personally think they're not really seen as complete well, classics in your view? Hmm. Well, like I said, I, I I feel the thing that I said the biggest problem about them, it just was permeated in, in a lot. You you yeah. the at the amount of valuable interactivity and the ability to make mistakes beyond just I made a mistake. Right. I mean, really, you play a fighting game. It's you don't go, oh, yeah, you know, I put in all the moves, but it didn't execute them correctly. And so uh, I lost. (laughs) You don't think that you think I did so that I did not react at the right time to the things that were coming at me. And every game is like that. Right. It's the world is reactive to what you're doing. And only only games that that don't feel like they're an extension of what you're doing, that have some artificial barrier that pull you away from it and don't immerse you. So I feel like like if, you know, I don't want to talk about every FMV, but the ones that I have played that I've disliked is because they fell in that category. Yeah. Um, For, for surgical strike, we tried to tighten up a lot. We had a lot of shots that when it was there, we just tried to tighten up a lot of stuff. So you'd see something, you get a payoff, payoff would be over and you go on to the next thing. It, you know, it wasn't worth three seconds to watch something. It was worth a second or a quarter of a second to see it. Mm. And then we'd move on. And that was something that we did in that game was we edited it down. Um, Wire, Wirehead was actually pretty much as is. There's, If you ever play that game, there's a little text at the bottom, like Robocop text. I added oh, that nice. in just because oh, I nice. wanted players to have something to see because you have to watch that game a lot. You know, the, it is where you run play, you play the scenes over and over and over again. So I wanted just something, just something else humorous or something that customers say if they played it and they, you know, have something else to look at instead of just the video. Uh, but outside of that, it was just based, the whole game was was completed. Um I'm sorry. I I, I feel like I, I didn't answer your question, but I tried to. No, it's brilliant. <laughs> um, we've got to, we've got to talk about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers because Power Rangers. there's there is a there's a lot of games for Power Rangers, and actually they, there's some good games. There's good games, and actually I think the Sega CD one as well. Uh, again, I, I want to hear your side of things, but it's it's clever. It it tries to do things differently. It's not your typical Sega CD game. But it's, I, I read somewhere that you had a very small time frame to get this <laughs> game complete. And I, I, I'd love to hear how you made a, quite an innovative, innovative game in quite a short time, really, or help produce sure. it, really. So I think this is going to prove the point of what I what I had been saying earlier. Um, first off, talking about everything's connected. So uh, the engineer for that product was my friend Chuck Batson, who was the lead engineer on Home Alone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had created his own company and he wanted something to do and it was very small. And I was like, well, you know, this is, I've got this project. It came to me. Uh, we got the rights to do Sega CD and we had a very short time to do it in because we wanted to make Christmas. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't going to be able to go out and film a power Rangers episode. Right. So yeah, the constraints yeah, yeah. were, Here's the Power Rangers series. What can I do with it? With the assumption being Dragon's Lair E. Um, yeah. yeah. And 
So I met with Chuck and I said, okay, so I want you to do this. I think this is perfect because you're very, very technical. There's a lot of technical challenges for us to build this game. And we got to get it done in like 90 days. Now, most games take <laughs> six, nine, 12 more months. Yeah. 90 days. Yes, Matt. <laughs> so I had, I said, this is how it's going to work. We're going to do this game and I've got this idea. So we're going to, when I do my game designs, I do extensive research. And my extensive research for this was I watched every single available episode of Power Rangers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can understand, what is it? What's the magic of this thing? Where does it come from? How do the Power Rangers begin? Now, remember, this is at a time before VHS was around. You couldn't just turn on Netflix and see the whole Power Rangers series. Mm-hmm. It's whatever was showing on that day. So I'm like, maybe there's a lot of Power Ranger fans. They don't really know like the origin story of what the Power Rangers are. I know I was interested. And so I watched the whole first season and, uh, and I was like, okay, okay. I get it. I see what, I see what's going on here. So let's build a game that is combat focused, obviously. Yeah. But we want the thing, the power Rangers are, they're human. They're they're They turn into the big drag, the, the big mega or mega, mega something. I I can't remember the name. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but uh, you know, so I wanted to keep all of those story arcs of what it was. I wanted to show, I wanted anybody who hadn't, who hadn't played Power Rangers to see the beginning. And the combat, I could not, I had done a game earlier. Um, well, I won't, I won't go into that. Um, so for this one, I was like, what's the problem? The problem is there's not enough interaction inside of these games. You're doing one yeah. punch. You see like X amount of seconds of something. You make a choice. Then you see X amount of seconds again if you did it correctly. Otherwise, you die. Um, and then you're dead and you're three times and you're gone. Hmm. So we've got to get rid of that. So what we did instead was we, I, I said, what if, so again, you're watching these things and, and you, one power ranger is doing this, the other power ranger is doing that. It cuts to another guy and he kicks somebody and somebody falls on the ground. you got to get up. So it's like, what if every one of these things, we have an interaction. So the player is given a visual and not just, you got to guess we're going to show. So like if there's a punch, we're going to show a punch, go across the screen. And if you don't hit the punch button in this amount of time, then the punch just failed. And what happens is you will lose health instead of lose life. So then the next cut, then it'll be a kick. So maybe the kick icon comes up and it starts to go up and then you're going to kick the icon. And if you hit it in that amount of time, then you get it and the thing goes on. If not, you take health until you run out of health because you've missed too many times. So now we have a game that is completely linear, just the movie showing, but we have interactivity with player choosing what to do and getting some sort of response at the bottom. Now this may sound familiar. I'll talk about it in a second. Um, (laughs) The uh, the the so that concept was there, and then I added in more stuff. So, like, you know, the faster you hit it, the bigger score you got. When you got more scores, you would get a life. So, we did have lives, we ran out of health, you ran out of life, so you could go three lives, but then you could also get an extra life. So, just by playing well, you could gain yourself. Uh, there were the the scenes where we were showing the 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 transformation, right? The Power Rangers transform into the Megasaur or whatever it's called, um, or they turn into the individual things, whatever. We um we would then give the player just a little bit of health increase and just say, you know, you made it to this stage. Let's yeah, just yeah, keep yeah. it a little easier for you at this point. So you, while you're watching it and enjoying it, you're also getting emotional satisfaction. So if everything is going right, then you feel character is punching. I'm punching. Character is kicking. I'm kicking. Character gets hit to the ground. I'm hitting the button to get myself back up. And you're feeling totally engaged with the narrative that's happening. 
That was clever. Yeah. I'm surprised there wasn't more FMV games like that, in my opinion. I think that's a clever sort of spin. Um, well, it was it was the end of the Sega CD lifestyle. Yeah, so if yeah, I had yeah. anything to do with it, there would have been more. <laughs> <laughs> the but Sega CD, yeah, the Sega CD is a funny time, wasn't it? Because an interesting machine. I I, I don't have one personally. Um, Dylan does, my my friend Dylan. But I've got a 32X. As, I mean, we'll talk about the 32X a bit later, yeah. actually. But that's that's an interesting time for Sega. Yeah, I have to say. Did you did you enjoy working on that particular console, the, the, the Sega CD? The CD, yeah, well, yes, yeah. I did. Again, I didn't. Those are the only games I think that I did with CD. I think everything else was cartridge based. But the fact that I got to do something brand new, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. in ninety days. So there's another thing. I I got to tell you this. Um, so I hadn't I hadn't even thought about this, but I'm having so many interactions in each scene. We had like twelve or thirteen scenes or something, you know, levels. Um, so these are a lot of inputs how are we going to get how are we going to get all of those inputs into the thing and chuck the engineer came up with a brilliant hack and what he said was i'm going to play the video back at half rate and then tony you're going to use a controller in record mode and when the scene comes up and you want the punch start to start you're going to click it and then when you want it to end you're going to click it again and then i will figure out I'll take all of that recorded data, and that will be how we get these fights. The time, the time frame to click. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. So in one pass through every level, I mean, maybe I make a mistake, but overall, pretty much just in a, in a day or two, I had all the levels lined up for what they were going to do. And if we needed to go back and change, we could. He had that ability. And we also – I created three um, – three um, difficulty levels. So the thing that moved across the screen was faster every time you go at a higher yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. You had less time to do it. Therefore, you had less time to hit the right thing. Therefore, you had less points that would get you more help. <laughs> That's amazing. What a great thank you for sharing that. What an interesting <laughs> story because people don't, I'll put my hands up, people don't think about that sort of stuff when they play these games. It's And especially in 90 days, let's be completely honest. <laughs> yeah. I bet you Oh, oh I, to, to finish that story. So then we hit QA in like day 30 or 60. Right. Yeah. Um, and we have like 30 days to get QA done. And we were working night and day. So Sega at America had three shifts, right? Day shift, night shift, and graveyard shift. So they were working 24 hours a day. We're not the oh, only yeah, yeah. customer that was doing <laughs> this. But I was one of the few people who would wake up in the morning, do my do my bug reports, see what the bug testers found, work them out with, with Chuck. Chuck would then send them back to me a new version. We had to, you know, cable, we had to download the new version of, of the of the stuff. <laughs> or maybe you had to, you know what? I think actually I had to FedEx it to me. I'm trying to remember. I, <laughs> one of the two. So we had this tiny tight frame of getting the information. I think he was, I think he was modeling it to me. And then we would, then I would put it immediately into test. So maybe we would miss in the same day before we went to bed, we would have a new version for them mm. to test and we go the next thing. And so it's that sort of thing. And many times I'd be waking up at one or 2 AM. Maybe there was a serious crash or something and I'd have to deal with it and figure it out and go into it. But we were just working intensely to make that happen. But without the QA and the, the 24 hour support, we could have yeah. never made it in the time. And we've, we've actually spoken to some of the Sega testers in the past. We've had like Eric Wahlberg and um, Kim Rogers. I can't, 
remember all Tom had Jeff Jeff Junior and stuff like that. And yep, you're, you're and they, remembering they, all the good names. They, they shared and, all the and great many stories. Others on top of that, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a crazy time and just sums up Sega so well. Um, I hope I've got the chronological order right here, but I think one of the last games for the Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis was Experts. It was quite late in the time frame for that particular console. And obviously, it was a, a spin-off game from Eternal Champions, which we, right. Michael Latham is known for loads of things. But that's probably one of his biggest. Um, you know, he was that was his baby, really. I'm sure you can agree that was huge. And I'm a big Eternal Champions huge. fan. It was, um, huge. yeah, it's a great, uh, beautiful game and um, amazing game. But e- Experts is an interesting game. I've played it a little bit, and I've. I don't want to upset anyone, but it was an intro. I think you were you, Tony, Tony's eyeballing me now. I will, um, I will accept your honest criticism. It's um, it's different. I was expecting something different because I'm used to Eternal Champions, but it was cool to see um, the universe expanded. I, I'd just love to know your... Uh, was was Michael involved in this game? Was it his idea? Was it your yeah. idea? Because I'd love to know about this particular this title a little bit. Okay, so I've told you a lot of success stories. I'm going to be super honest. This was not a success story for me, <laughs> uh, and it's partially my fault. Um, okay, uh, I, I won't take all the blame. I will take a good portion of it though. Right. Um, okay, so Mike. So first, Mike was like, "I want to do other games using my characters." And I'm like, oh, that, yeah, that's cool, Mike. You know, these are cool characters. They all deserve their own games. Why not? And I was thinking about, like, trying to do Blade was a futuristic bounty hunter in one of his, in his, you know, Eternal Champions. So I was trying to think about, like, some side-scroller with Blade and, you know, doing cool stuff, being the bounty hunter, doing all these neat things. Um, but I couldn't get any traction on that. I, I I don't know what it was. I just couldn't get it to go. But he came up and said, you know, I want to do uh, one with uh, with one of my characters. And I've got this whole idea of what it's going to be. It's going to be like an espionage story. Mm. And I'm like, oh, OK, OK, let's let me hear it. And so he says, okay, this is what it is. This is an underwater thing and, and everybody, and, you know, it's an automated system and you've got these team of experts that are each experts in their field and they have to stop this threat in this underwater lab. Yeah. Um, and I said, okay, that, that's very cool, Mike. Um, Tony, go figure out, you'll get this done. So um, we had worked, so <laughs> back at Activision, I had met a guy named Glenn Anderson. And Glenn Anderson had, it was one of the guys who had done one of the, you know, back in the day, like the Atari 2600, some of the hits that Atari, that, that Activision had. So, you know, I mean, this guy knew a lot about video games. He created, and, and we became friends at Activision. So later he created his, his company to do video games. And so we were going to work with him. And that was great because, again, you, you love to work with friends. You want to work with things. But the big thing on this game was because it was the end of the life cycle and because Donkey Kong Jr. came out, they yeah. really wanted it to look like Donkey Kong Jr. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's kind of a tall order. And we do some great things on Genesis and SES does some other things that are different than us. This is one of those areas where they're a little bit better than we are. No, no, no. It's got to be this. It's got to be this. So, okay. Um <laughs> So we spent a lot of time trying to get the technology of that, trying to get the art right, trying to get that. Um, but uh, that's not the problem. The, yeah. the problem ultimately is, well, let me, t- let me just say one of one or two good things about it. So the, the 3D rendered stuff, it was really hard, but it ended up looking pretty neat. And I did have people come by my office when I was working on it. And say, wow, is that a 32X game? Oh, no, it's not. It's Sega. Wow, wow. 
So we got we got a lot of interest on that just you know from the way that it was being pushed uh, visually. And then I also Mike Mike you know Mike gave me the basic storyline, and I wanted a game that again would be fun to replay over and over and yeah, over again. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea of having four people that each had their own expertises in certain things, um, I wanted them to I wanted the game to be a lot of I have to beat robots and go do tasks that I'm that I'm associated. And it was this big underwater layer. And again, this is another game where we were simulating stuff that was happening where you weren't. Um, but there are all these different levels and all these things. So I created a, a, a design where there was a narrative that uh, this has to happen, then that has to happen, then that has to happen, mm -hmm. then that has to happen. So it was linear, right? That's generally how most games yeah. are. But then yeah. I had a second narrative that was time-based. So every tw every five minutes, this thing would happen. And then on minute 10, this would happen. On minute 13, this would happen. On minute 18, this would happen. And so what, in theory, would be as you're playing this game, you're trying to do the, the linear tasks, but then these other things would come mm. up, and that mm. would make it interesting to say, oh, wow, I'm down here. We've got this thing that I need here. My expert is here. Do I send my expert up to do it, or do I take the guy who's not so good at it and just have him do it because he's right there? That was the idea that I was Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally didn't work. I, I can't explain why. <laughs> <laughs> it really never worked. And I was like, oh, I, I'm missing something. I don't quite get it. Um, and the third, uh, Dead Rising, the zombie game, ended up doing something similar to this, and it worked really well. So the idea was good. <laughs> I messed it up somehow. I don't know. How. Uh, but the real, real problem. I told you I do deep research into my games when I do them. And that can be reading all of the IP or trying to play every type of game that I'm doing. Um, and lots of times they were games that I already were familiar with, so it wasn't such a steep hill. But this was a fighting game. And there's two games that I don't play. I don't play fighting games. I don't play sport games. Right, so okay. <laughs> uh, this was one that I think I was just dumb. I was, I was a little bit maybe egotistical. I can't tell you exactly why I felt the way I did, but I didn't feel a lot of need to, to, to do deep check into fighting games. Oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. Oh, combo. Oh, yeah, I understand. Oh, yeah, I get it. You do this and do that. I mean, I played them. I just didn't. <coughs> yeah. So I think that's the real problem, ultimately, is I didn't have a good respect for what was fun about fighting games. Right, so once okay. you get into the fighting game, surprise, it's not that great. Sorry. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty, Sorry, Tony. Yeah, I mean, I like the honesty. Um I mean, was there any other games on Sega that you worked on? Did you work on any like thirty-two X games, Tony, or anything like that? Or did I work on? Well, I did Wirehead. I did System, uh, or, or uh, what's it called? Um, I did Wirehead and the other FMV one, the Strike game, um, which name is escaping me, even though I said it thirty minutes ago. Um, I did those in 32X versions. So, oh, and, okay. and Fahrenheit. So all the FMVs, not surprisingly, not uh, Power Rangers, but the uh, other three FMV games, because they were early in their life cycle and early in the CD life cycle and at 32X was coming out and there was a big push. So the video is so much better if you ever get a chance to play any of those games um, and you get the CD and a 32X hooked up. Um, then you will see at least something that you know looks pretty cool. Yeah, because that that they're weird 
they're the weird games where you, you expect to have both, aren't you? Both peripherals, and they kind of add to it, and it's it's incredible, isn't it? Is that right? I it think really that's... is, and, and it was a great strategy, right? Yeah, you know, the reason 32X showed up was we were doing Virtual Fighter, and Virtual Fighter required a whole new chipset, right? So I remember I told you in the beginning of the game all the way the graphics work and everything's a square and all yeah, that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And polygons are not in the cards. So for us to do a really good polygon game, you either had to put a really big polygon chip on the cart and sell it for a lot more. And, you know, everything wanted to be polygons or, you know, something like that. So you either keep hitting customers over and over and over again, or you say, hey, I've got this thing. You're going to plug it in and it's going to improve all the games that we sell. So you pay for it once and you're getting games at normal price. It was a really good plan. It's just the, I think the life cycle just wasn't as long as everybody hoped. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, Did you, do you have any any more sort of funny or memorable stories about your time at Sega? Happy to share um, anything, any crazy stories? I mean, you know, being, working at Sega, I mean, working in all these places, every one of them, it was just fun. You know, there's just so many people that you would interact with every day. Um, you had, you know, pranksters like Eric Wahlberg, uh, who would always, uh, you know, make yeah, things yeah. funny. Uh, you had things like, you know, Mike Latham would take the team out. We'd go to like to the racetrack as a big celebration for something because we had a racetrack just down the street from us, a horse racetrack. Um, and that was just fun. Um, we, you know, but, but even just day to day, it was like we were just all really happy to be doing the things we do. And even though it was really hard uh, and sometimes extremely time consuming. I've got to ask quickly about Sega soft because, because it's an unusual, interesting time for Sega and um, heat.net and Eric Wahlberg kindly shared some amazing stories with me in the past working on NetFighter, for example. And I, I don't think enough people know about Sega soft and, and what it tried to do and maybe being ahead of its time. I, I would argue uh, it's kind of like being the fade into memory. Lots of people have forgotten about it, but are you happy to explain it quickly, what it is and how you're yeah. involved? Okay, so um, Sega Soft is two things. It, Sega, Sega had decided to, to stop development in the United States. And I and again, I don't know all the details of this, so I don't want to miscategorize it. But what happened was all of the development team ended up becoming part of a new thing called SegaSoft. And the big thing about SegaSoft was it was not just going to build games for Sega machines. They were going to build games for PC. They were going to build games for PlayStation. They were going to be in the game building business. Yes. And, you know, and have all the the production people who had worked at Sega. Now, I had left. Um, and uh, that's the other thing that happened with experts. I had left before the thing had ended. Right. Um, and so that was also really hard to drop on somebody else and say, you know, try to fix everything. So, um, you know, but just the fact that I didn't actually close the thing up um, hurt probably the game even more. Uh, but I left and then I did another different thing and I came back. And when I came back, it was Segasoft. And I was like, hey, what's going on with Segasoft, Mike? He's like, actually, we got a position for you here, Mike. T- uh, Tony, <laughs> really? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing this thing called Heat.net. So Heat.net, at the time, there were the idea of playing the, on an internet was weird. You weren't buying games to play on the internet. What you did was you bought a game, and if you were lucky, it had some ability to play a LAN, which is the idea of your your, your um 
computers all together in the same room, like yeah. a closed door yeah, or, kitchen, room yeah. or something. And then there was some technology from third parties that allowed people to extend that into the internet. So you would have an, ex you could play a game against other people, but it wasn't really a great experience. It's possible, but not a great experience. Yeah. And there were two other companies at the time that were leveraging that idea and trying to say, let's put some, put some hardware to make this a better experience. Let's build some technology to make it a better experience. And one of them was the was 10, the Total Entertainment Network. And the other one was a company called Empath. And they were each sort of selling a box that said, buy this thing, install it on your computer, and then we will help you find other people that are playing these games online. Um, and then sometimes they would work with, with, the, with the game producers to make a better experience of working those games online. So it was a way for third party way for the people to play these games they owned and not necessarily have the company build an entire infrastructure for it. Yeah. So Sega saw, Sega saw the opportunity of online gaming, hmm, playing games over the internet with people. That, <laughs> that sounds like that could be something that people want to do in the future. Yeah, and and Sega had already done some stuff earlier, but in in prototyping that stuff. But ultimately, this this was a whole new thing, and so they hired me to be the executive producer. To basically, I mean, I had uh, there were two things. There was buildingheat.net, which is what I was lead on, and then there was um, and then there were building games to support heat.net because we need to have some first party stuff that that really showed off what it did. So there were games going on internally. We were doing deals with other people to build our technology so we would have some external support. We were doing games that we could put in the package so we could own them. They're finished, complete, you know, high-quality games, but for whatever yeah. reason didn't make in the marketplace, so we brought them to us. Um, Mike had this great idea for doing Quake was huge, and Quake was yeah. a huge thing that was pushing all these things. So Mike had a great idea to... to I can't remember if they created a mod or somebody had created a mod and they licensed it, but there was this thing called the the bomb uh, and it was some sort of quake mod. And that was again, exclusive. It was going to be exclusive for heat. Oh, that's, so that's what he done. That was you'd log on to it. You would see all the games that were supported and you would go into a lobby and you'd say, Hey, I want to play a multiplayer game, but it's bigger than that. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll get to the bigger than that in a minute. When I'm hired, they have the technology. So the, the people who, it's the Segasoft people had some inroad to Empath. So they were able to Empath all of the Empath technology. So we had to build all of our own Empath servers and stuff. And then um, we, as I said, we were building the games. But what was this thing? What was this thing that the customers were going to interact with? Yeah. There was nothing when I walked in. Um, <laughs> and so that was job one for me was go to the whiteboard, sit down with all the people in the room, say, okay, what are we going to do? Okay, we need a homepage. Okay, what's going to happen on the homepage? Okay, we need a launching page. Okay, we need a launching page. Okay, we need a lobby page. Okay, the lobby page. What's going to happen on the launch page? So I, I basically built out the whole infrastructure of what it was going to be. Uh, from a sitemap type standpoint, and then worked with every individual people. So as I said, being a producer is trying to make sure that the game is happening on time, on budget, and you know to quality. Well, I was also designing what this thing was while working with the entire company to build up everything that we needed to go live with this thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And Mike Latham was there. So Mike Latham, you know, he's VP, and uh, he had... He and Peter Loeb had the vision of what Heat.net was, like the big vision. And Mike had a lot of control over like the look. 
he was really into what it wanted to be as a look. Um, so he was there and I would run a lot of stuff through him on, on what, you know, would this look like this? Does that look like I'd show him the designs. He'd give me his feedback on designs, but I was sort of the guy on the ground just making it all happen. So we could have a, basically a website that people can log into. I mean, why wasn't it successful? Do you think Tony was it, was it too ahead of its time in a way, which reckon it's almost before the big online gaming thing that happened a few years later. I mean, it's an incredible part of history in my yeah, opinion yeah well you know let's look 10 10 didn't work empath didn't work as a service um and so you know it net didn't work as a service either i think it was just like you said too ahead of the time yeah the the extra sauce that we had at ours was we had a concept of wagering so you could have all these points that you could buy stuff with and you could get points by playing games you could get points by buying by buying items uh, and then you would take those points and get swag or get, you could even buy a game if you had enough points like you know I could get a quake um, and so the idea was in the one on one matches you could wager a certain amount of your points into that match against ah. the other person win. And this was a whole big thing because we we're like, oh, well, it's gambling. So we had to make sure that it wasn't gambling. And the whole key, anybody who knows anything about gambling law, the whole thing is about gambling is about game chance. Um, and and wagering is uh, or doing it legally uh, is a game of skill. Uh, so poker is a game of skill. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is what everything was based on. Everything was based on if you win this thing, it's because you are theoretically better than the next person who tried it. Um, and that's, that's where that was. So that was the extra stuff that we had. We call the points degrees to do along with the heat. <laughs> Why I did mean, it feel? I don't know. <laughs> it must look great up and running when seeing actual gamers playing online, seeing it working. I mean, what, Back in the office, were you confident it was going to be successful? Were people oh, yeah. thinking this is the next big thing? Or yeah, well, I mean, the the you know the whole catchphrase was "heat is going to save the world," <laughs> yeah. and and heat had this whole sort of. I mean, it was maybe it was too smart, maybe it was too much for itself because we built this whole thing uh, in marketing. It there was like this concept of this kind of like guru who came up with the idea of what heat was, and people get aggression because we have lizard brains, and so we have to get our progressions out. So let's do it virtually. And and, you know, and, and all this crazy, crazy stuff to try to just get traction and get on the map and get people to kind of get uh, the idea. The idea of the peace logo was like a gun sight with a peace sign in it. And uh, uh, it was, it, I mean, it was a lot. So we, we threw a lot of stuff at the wall and unfortunately not a whole lot stuck. Unfor I mean, it did run for a number of years. It's not yeah. like it fell apart the next day, but, um, but uh, definitely pro the, 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 you know, what happened with Michael and, and the rest of us is they decided to keep heat running, but only as a third party service. So right. everybody who was producing the content, um, you know, we all, we're all let go. I'm, well, that, that kind of preempts my next question. I was going to ask, what was your next steps really? And um, I mean, before you, before you explain it, moving on to electronic arts or, or EA, do you have any final, how would you reflect back on Sega and, and how does it compare maybe to Sega of today? I mean, Sega is still going strong. Do, have you got any views about? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't possibly say what it reflects to the Sega of today. Yeah. Uh, all I know is what I witnessed at the time I was there, and it was pretty great. I mean, there's, yeah, there were yeah. some tough times and some, you know, a lot of a lot of things that uh, that we had to really push hard on. Um, but I mean, bottom line, you know, I I, I had a great time. <laughs> oh, good on you, Tony. And it was was electronic arts your next step? Then is that right? Yeah. So uh, electronic arts was was. 
doing internet matchmaking stuff too. And so um, I, because of my strength on heat, I got hired in uh, to go and work there. And that evolved into EA.com, which was, uh, this was the part where everybody was, um, internet spinoffs were big money. Everybody yes. was making money by becoming a dot com something. Yeah. So EA was going to create a, a you know a, a whole separate division dot com, um, and well, we worked on it. We worked on it, and I think two things. One thing was was nine eleven happened, and and that wow. you know had a huge impact on the world, um, but also the dot com bubble kind of burst. Yeah, so I worked on a bunch, a bunch of games. And some things got live, some things were baited, and then they never went live. Uh, and then the whole thing kind of just fell apart. I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, do you, do you look back at your time at EA in a positive way, or is it a bit of a... Well, a you know, again, it was all hope. It was all, we think we're doing something cool. We're going to be the ones that are going to do this thing neat and well. We have a lot of different ideas. Anybody who looks up you know, the, the history of EA.com, they'll see there's a lot of interesting stuff that happened. I was working on a game called Multiplayer Battletech 3025. So once again, uh, things are connected. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm friends with the FASA people. I'm doing work with Kesmai people who had done a lot of uh, stuff on AOL. EA, EA had bought the AOL game service. So we thought we inherited all that. I mean, again, it was a good play and it yeah. was a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's just, you know, it's always hard. And that's, I think the hardest part about the game industry is you can work really, really hard and still get the rug pulled out from under you. But yeah, think, you know, yeah. what are you going to do? As long as you're enjoying yourself, you know, as long as you're, you're doing something you believe in and you're having a good time with it, then, you know, it's, it's still worth it in my opinion. Oh, definitely. And Tony, you've got a massive resume of games. It's huge when you look at all the games you worked on. I couldn't help but notice you, you did work on quite a few CSI games, actually. Yes, I mean, I mean that's quite an interesting... I've seen a few of the shows. I'm not saying it's, I'm a, you know, an ardent viewer, but it's a big show, a big television series. Uh, are you a fan of the show, and how did that opportunity come about? I've got to, I've got to quickly ask. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, so uh, I, I was looking for a job uh, and uh, after EA.com and a friend of mine who I met working at SSI was running the Ubisoft San Francisco development group. And um, I said, Hey, I'm looking for something. He's like, well, actually we, we need someone and we need someone to do a number of things, but this new thing that we just signed with CSI, would you like to work on that game? And my answer was, I love CSI. I've seen every single episode of that, movie, of that show since it came out. I am a huge fan and uh, I would love it. So that worked out. Uh, I got to go there. There was a company called 369 Interactive. They're a group in, in Vancouver. Made a lot of great games. They made the pitch to say, this is what we want our CSI game to be. And, you know, because generally when you do this, another thing that producers do is when you get a game, especially a license, and you're not an internal development house, then you're going to go and find somebody to build that game. And so we, yeah. you shop a number of people and you say, here's the idea. Give us what your vision is and also, you know, what your cost is and how long you think it's going to take. And, you know, basically tell us what you think this is and how comfortable you are in, in developing it and, and delivering it. And 
So you read a lot of stuff. So these guys came in and they just had a just it's pitch on. They're like, it's an adventure game. When I was talking to people at the time, I like, talked to my friends and say, oh, we're on CSI. Oh, I don't understand. How could you make that? CSI is a game. How does that work? And this is a world, this is first person world that we're in now, right? So yeah, everybody's yeah, thinking yeah. like you're running around with a microscope, with magnifying glass in front of your face or something. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's an adventure game. Man. It's like, you know. It's like mist. It's like you know yeah, all the yeah, all the point and clicks and LucasArts and Sierra games that I loved. Right, oh, I'm going to play all of those. So um, we were going to bring it back because you know it hadn't really it kind of gone away. So working with them, we came up with the thing. They came up with these great 3D models of the characters, so they looked good. I'm talking with the with the people on on uh, CBS, you know, the licensor, and they're saying, "Look, you know, this we want this to be really a a, a good game." You know, and I'm like, "I want it to be a really a good game," and you know, I think the most important thing on this game is authenticity, and it's authenticity to the science because that's what CSI is about, but it's also authenticity to the TV production. So they got me access to the creator of the show, and I met with him and told him what the game was. They got me access to the sets. Which so we could go and take visual. Um, oh, nice. My wife actually took all the pictures of the sets, so oh, we cool. could render them realistically in the game. Uh, and then we negotiated with all of the voice actors, and we got them to come in and read all of their roles, which just wasn't done. You know, uh, yeah. if you look at any TV game, um, almost every one of them. If you're lucky, if you're lucky, you get most of the cast. If you're unlucky, you get none of the cast. So we got everybody. <laughs> And it was just, it was so great. It was so great to work. Oh, and I hired, I, I hired their, their um, technical consultant, their, their real life forensic technical consultant to make sure all of our science was accurate. And I hired the guy who had written their novelizations is um, and he had, you know, just written road to perdition and that was a big thing. So we got him to do it. So I just had authenticity all over the yeah, place. Yeah. That's what I mean about deep, deep research. That's the type of stuff I did. I read a bunch of forensic books too. I really want to make sure I knew what I was talking about when we were doing these, these mysteries and figuring out how we were going to find out, you know, what, who did it. <laughs> That's great. Tony, what, what great, you know, I appreciate it. You know, you can tell you're very diligent. You, you take it seriously and, and you know, you've had a, amazing career um i've got a tough question for you now though you've worked on a lot of games a huge array of games across many many companies is there one particular game or maybe a couple of games that you think wow this is my best i'm really proud of this and maybe or or even just that you have the best memories of necessarily what, what would you say yeah okay so if i'm gonna say one I'm going to have to go with Die Hard because that was my very first game. On the, on the NES, um, is that right? It was the first game that I had pu- 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 published. I was in a, you know, nobody knew who I was. Um, that game I had to go and get, they were going to just send it to some group to do a design on. And I'd saw the movie and I was like, God, this movie's so awesome. We got to have an awesome game. And so I had pitched it to numerous people as to what it was and why it was going to be different. And then it was an open world game, which I didn't have the world open world or sandbox at that time, but I just expressed what it was and they had enough faith in me to say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. We'll, we'll get a group to to do this. And so they negotiated, um, you know, who would do it. It was a group in Japan and they did just an es- excellent job. And I just had a lot of fun, you know, 
thinking about what this was and how I was going to do it. I did every map of what the levels were going to be. I did a full design document, no idea what a design document looked like. And, um, because I had to hand it off to somebody and they were just going to, you know, make it without me being like involved. But that I would have to say is my, my favorite, favorite memory. There were lots of little things that happened. I won't go deep into that discussion (laughs) here, but, uh, uh, that's it. And then after that, you know, Battletech was great. Shadowrun was great. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was great. And CSI was great. Every one of those has amazing memories from both working with the people that we did to build it and the new things that we tried. Yeah. Um, I have to try this uh, Die Hard game now. I, have, I really have to get it out, um, <laughs> give it a go. Um, I mean, w- what was the first open world game ever made? I, I don't want to chuck it out there, Tony. I have I'm no just... idea. I, a lot of people think like the like, Populous is like one of the ones that's most popular, I think. Yeah, on the you know, Amiga, which is a classic being game. Being a god yeah. and make things happen. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, I Like I said, I, in that game, I don't. It wasn't like, oh, I played a game like this. Uh, so my background was was much more PC game, right? Yeah. And so I was not as constrained in my thinking about how a, what would make a good um, arcade game. And in some cases, that that's bad because people come in with a preconceived notion of what type of game they're going to get. And when they don't get that, they're not like, oh, but that's cool. It's different. Um, and sometimes it's great. And it's like, wow, that's a whole different thing. And, and you know, I wasn't expecting that, but this is, this is new. But to me, it was just about um, how do, you know, Die Hard, how do you represent the plight of John McClane? Yeah. You're a lone guy. <laughs> you have like nothing. You have no shoes. And <laughs> yeah. you've got all these terrorists all over the building and multiple floors yeah. with multiple agendas going on how what do you do in that situation and it wasn't go down the hall and shoot someone and go down the hall and shoot someone and go down the hall and kick someone it, it wasn't that <laughs> no because that wouldn't be fair for the film would it the film's quite a, it's quite a smart movie actually it's i think amazing actually. i just watched it again uh, yeah, it is great a great christmas movie that's the best christmas movie ever. i was going to ask you is it a christmas <laughs> movie you, you've answered it um if you played the playstation diehard games the, the yes, trilogy I, yes i have um Everybody has their own take. Everybody has their own thought on it. Yeah, and, and yeah. you know, they'd say PlayStation game. I mean, there there were multiple versions, right? You know, as as yeah. Diehards continued to come out, there were multiple versions. One of my one of my good friends from Sega ended up producing uh, one of the versions. So I, I definitely paid played t- special attention to that. But again, it's really more about um, uh, you know being being on the character and watching them do their things. Um, no, oh, thank you. No, Tony, what a lovely – I've just got um, a couple last questions to finish sure. up the interview, but it's been such a fun chat. Um, again, this this is a tough question, though. Uh, what, are, what are your top three video games of all time? And maybe really briefly explain why. I mean – Well, okay. Well, can I cheat? I think, I think I'd like to take – Three that are kind of new school and three that are kind of old. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's, let's yeah, I can cheat. Right. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. So um, in general, I like puzzle games. I like strategy games. And I like games with humor. So of the newest ones, like the latest one that I played that I thought checked all those boxes. And also had time travel, which is also a great thing. Oh, I love time Death travel. Loop. Um, that oh, was okay. amazing. That was so fun. That's this is a game where you wake up as an assassin with no memory, and you have to go through an island and kill every like you know, like five or six people in order to stop the the game the time loop from happening. 
Wow. And uh, and it's not as simple because guess what? They're all across different parts of the island. And guess what? Some of them are in the same two places at the same time. So what happens in this game is you you go through it, you fail. You're going to fail, no doubt. And you're going to reset, but you're going to keep your memory. And so that helps a second narrative. You have a second narrative that's going oh. on where you're remembering stuff from the past. You're remembering more about your past because you're finding it out. And you're also observing what happens in each world because it always resets. So people are always doing the same things over and over again. And it is just uh, just an incredible game for so many that different sounds ways. amazing. Yeah, I, I believe it's on all the three big platforms. I believe it's on PS5, Xbox, and PC. Is it called Death Loop? Time Death, Loop? Death Loop. Death Loop. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. check that out. That sounds That's really it. up my kind of thing, actually. I, I got to say, it's it's one I would think about maybe even playing again if I didn't already have a thousand games I still want to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Then, of course, the other one, Portal. Portal 1 and oh, 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Same thing. Well, not same thing, but, you know, in this scenario, just the, the puzzles, the physics, the the crazy world, that the story that's being developed, and, um, and of course, the, the crazy humor, especially when you finish the game and you hear the the, the, the song that they play in the end credits. Uh, that's, that's amazing. And then finally, of, of the new school, Fallout. All yeah. Fallout. Every Fallout. Okay. <laughs> okay, good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, bridges me, which bridges me to the, to the past because Fallout is, was originally not console-based. But, um, PC, yeah. Right. But yeah, just the world building, the craziness, the things that happen. Um, you know, it's not really a lot of humor, but there's a lot of dark humor in it. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, I will always remember, and I think it's Fallout 3, you come out of the, you come out of the, the um, hangar, you know, the, the thing that you're in, um, bunker. And yep. you, you just get out of it and you crest over and you see the entire, like, metropolis landscape in front of you. And it's just, it's, it's such an incredible feeling of emotion just to say, you know, you spent the first 20, 30 minutes in this little steel room and then you walk out and the whole world is open. And that's exactly what, you know, Fallout yeah. games are, is just the whole world is open to you. Oh. All right. So now can I do yeah, my other three really quickly? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. All right. So um, Jagged Alliance 2. I don't know if you've ever played Jagged I, Alliance. I think I've played this. PC only. It's pretty old. But again, it's your mercenaries. So you're hiring a team of mercenaries. You're the big guy, but you're not on board. You're hiring mercenaries to do a job. And they're going onto an island to take care of a dictator. And yeah. so it's you're, you're hiring the people. They come with their own skills. They come with their own personalities. They don't some get along great with the people you hire with them some don't like them at all you get all this little friction with these guys and uh and then the story is is a moving on with the dictator and it's actually a very funny story it seems quite, quite right. dense but but it's actually quite amusing and you're improvising you're you're figuring out how to make better weapons meanwhile you're while you're using stuff anyway amazing amazing immersive game i love it i'm i wish there were more jagged alliances jagged alliance yeah I just uh, yeah. Google it. It looks good. Top down, doesn't it? Top down, kind of. The uh, the other one, which is really old, although I believe I just saw it got remastered. Masters of Magic. So this oh, is right. Civilization yeah, yeah, yeah. meets Magic the Gathering. And boy, is it good. 
or at least it was when I played it. <laughs> so you have all these different play styles. So you know how civilization is. Yeah, I mean, good civilization game. is a thousand Very play good. style. But then you're choosing your character at the beginning with the different color magics that you want to mm. specialize in. So your gameplay and your abilities to, you know, uh, your basic building is now modified by whatever magic type that you chose. So it's just great replayability, lots of fun. My final one is um, a game called Suspended, which is Infocom's, one of Infocom's early games. Yeah, 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 okay. And this game, it lives in my my mind of, of you know, Hall of Fame because while every Infocom game is good, um, and the big thing is, you know, their, their marketing was, you know, we use the best graphic uh, processor known to man, your mind. Right. Um, this one really couldn't just be taken and then made into a visual thing, or at least not easily, because in this game, you control six different robots, and each robot has a different way of perceiving the world. So in order to solve the problems of the game, you may need to go into the room with all six robots at some right. time and understand what each of them is you know, seeing seeing um, to represent the reality of what this room is. And then you will figure out which robot you're going to need to do what part to, to solve the job. One part of one robot only sees electronic stuff. So they only see electronic signals. One robot only hears things. Um, so it, it's just amazing. And I don't think anybody can, um, can beat that. And it's also, uh, was written by Michael Berlin, who unfortunately passed away two months ago. Uh, he had done a lot of stuff in the game industry, including creating my understanding. He he either, he didn't create the visual look of the character, the idea of the character of, of, uh, Bubsy. (laughs) Bubsy. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we have a bit of a love hate relationship. We, we have talked about Bubsy in the past, but he's a good he's Michael a character. Berlin to, to thank for that. <laughs> oh, well, rest um, in peace. What, what a legend, you know? Yeah. What a legend. Great games. Um, I've, I have to, I put my hands up. I played Portal. I like Portal. I like Fallout, but I haven't played the others, but I want to check them out, though, definitely. I, I, um, I highly recommend it. If you can, highly recommend it. Uh, you'll not be unhappy. Oh, Tony. Look, it's been a great chat, and... Um, it really is an honour, you know, to to have you on the show, and I really appreciate your time and this, and be, just sharing some stories, like real honest stories, and giving us a flavour, another flavour of, of what Sega and EA and what, what it's like working in the video game industry. So I do really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you because not only have you done like an amazing job of bringing on legendary people, um, I I we have a problem of of creating a history of the video game world and being able to document. And so giving me the opportunity to talk about some of the things that nobody else knows except me and to give a new light to the, yeah. to the games that I worked on and maybe even give someone an idea of what it's like to be a producer or a designer yeah. at the time. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate being able to, to help preserve our history a little bit. And thank you for having this channel and this opportunity to do that. We've we've spoken to some amazing people, and um, I, I never. Uh, well, I always. I can't believe how lucky we are because we're we're just big gamers. Really, at the end of the day, and talking to the people that made the games is a real pl- pleasure and privilege. And you're right, you know. And um, I don't want to, you know, bring bring the mood down, but obviously Michael's passed away. But I think he was quite proud to share his stories to us, and we're extremely proud that we had the opportunity. And I think giving people the opportunity to learn about from Michael example, what he went through and, and what, he, what he did in his career was 
I think a privilege anyway. So, yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. And it required you and your team to talk about these games, dissect the games and get him involved because yeah. you know, he's a private guy. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a private guy too, honestly. So yeah. the fact that you got him to, to come here and talk and, and engage with you again, just says how wonderful of a job you guys have done in bringing to life these things that uh, are often forgotten. Oh, bless you. Yeah, it was, it, it, originally it was, uh, uh, we were going to do a podcast on the 10 of champions. And I've just asked him a few questions for text interview and it kind of snowballed. And before you know it, he, he became <laughs> a friend of mine. <laughs> he became a friend. How and, it goes. Yeah. Uh, to, um, to quote Big Trouble from Little China, that's how it always begins. Very <laughs> yeah. That's a great film, by the way. Um, look, Tony, we, we ask all our guests one final question, and it's a bit of a weird question, a bit funny, a bit silly, but we always do it. So uh, I, can't, I can't leave you without asking this final question. If you could share a drink or a few drinks with any video game character, have a little chat, have a few drinks, have a laugh, with any fictional video game character, who would you choose and why? So it has to be a fictional video game character. Well, it could be any, any character. <laughs> that, <Quentin. laughs> um, okay. Well, geez. I mean, I, I, there's like so many to choose from. Um, but I think in, in, to, to make everything being connected in this way, I'm going to go with Pitfall Harry, who is the first yes. action character from Activision to cause like tremendous video game mania. Um, I've read the stories, uh, the, the fan letters that David Crane would get from people playing that game. So I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose Pitfall Harry, but in reality, uh, I'd like to talk to David Crane. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever met David Crane? Up I, I did not get the chance to work with him. I worked with a company at Activision that had, that did work with him and worked with um, Steve Cartwright. Um, but I never got a chance to actually talk to him. And uh, I go pitfall. It was if, uh, if, if your thing ever, if you're if if this or or anything else other opportunity comes for you to get him on, then that would be yet another feather in your cap. <laughs> that would be amazing. I mean, I, I can't deny it. Pitfall changed platforming games. It changed the video game. It was amazing, wasn't it? You know, classic. Uh, you're a true legend. So yeah. I, Hey, I'd, I'd join you with those drinks. I'll tell you that for free. Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Look, thank you so much again for your time. Um, really, really is a pleasure and honor. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank Tony. you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. You can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcade Attack UK. Check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots more retro gaming goodness and to delve into our archives. Our podcasts are also available on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review and a rating, we'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to support Arcade Attack, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash arcadeattack, which will give you access to exclusive podcasts, interviews and other bonus content. So... Until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.